turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and because I'm going to get into that, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. One of the shocks to me was a gift that we've given over and over and over again to our kids, and many of you, I think, can relate to this, a Lego set. You know, we have a big box of Legos I mean, full of random pieces that, you know, as parents, we hate stepping on as we're walking through, especially in the middle of the night. It's super painful. But in that, you usually have creations. And, and I grew up in a home where we had this massive box that continued to get bigger and bigger. And you'd have to, my parents would say, go play Legos. What that meant was we had to go and figure out some sort of creation out of the masses of chaotic blocks. And it eventually, given a little bit of discipline, happened. I found something unique that happened with my son Silas. He actually loved the directions provided to him in each of the kits. Now, they have really upped the ante on their Lego kits now. Each of the separate um, motorcycles or houses are in separate bags, and you have these, these organizations go step one, step two. And he loved it. He spent hours upon hours. And I'm starting to think, I might want to invest in this. You know, it's so much better than iPad or, or something, you know, um, Among Us or something like that. It's just go play Legos. And th- he loved the step-by-step approach. And it, it was a reminder to me of our text this morning. Because here we have in First Timothy, the Apostle Paul giving step-by-step instructions to the church in Ephesus about what is most important. And you've seen us today, and you have for the last several weeks, emphasize prayer. I thought this would be a great way to encourage you, encourage all of us to think about the priority of prayer as we hit 2021. So it it is a call for you to pray personally, but really primarily the passage of scripture calls for corporate prayer, the priority of corporate prayer. So I want to encourage you to consider this with me. We'll look at these three points as it relates to prayer, the priority, and he says, first of all, And then he urges us in the the aspect of praying. And then the the purpose of why why we pray and then the power behind it. So we're really looking at prayer. And I have the notes for you available online at pbcpowdersville.org if you wanted to download those. But to set the stage a little bit, let's ask the question, who wrote this book? And I think we all know that, but let me show you. Take your Bible, turn over to chapter 1, and you'll notice the author here in verse 1, Paul an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So Paul is the one writing it, and we know who he's writing to, because the next verse says to us, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So Timothy is not his biological child, but his child in the faith, which means he was a part of the disciple-making process. A lot of times when we talk, to, talk about someone as my child in the faith, we refer to someone whom we've had the privilege of leading to Christ. And I hope each of you has had that privilege. And if you haven't, then you would join the somewhere 95% of members of Bible-believing churches that have never led someone to Christ. I don't say that to guilt you, but to encourage you to share your faith so you can see someone come to Christ. But here Paul uses the term my child in the faith, not as I led him to Christ, but I continued to disciple him. So all of us can have children in the faith if we are participating in teaching Sunday school, picking out a couple that we would invest in in 2021, or someone in our neighborhood who's a believer that needs encouragement and walking alongside of them. That's disciple making. And that is, by the way, the Great Commission. Many times we make the Great Commission just evangelism, 
Evangelism is part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is making disciples. And so Paul here is saying to Timothy, my true child in the faith, because his mother and grandmother were the ones that God used specifically to lead him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We find that later on in 2 Timothy. The time in which this book was written is pretty important given the context of what we're going to consider in our passage in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It's written between AD 62 and 64, and I want to bring that up to you because someone was reigning over Rome. His name was Nero. Nero was very ruthless towards Christians, and there was a great fire that broke out in AD 64 in Rome, and Nero's solution was blame the Christians. The Christians are the ones who caused the fire. So in general, it was a society in which it was anti-God, anti-Christian. In fact, so anti-Christian, some of the Christians were crucified and burned on those crosses as they lined the roads going into Rome. It was a very, very difficult time to be a believer. And it was interesting to me as I was picking this passage because of the, the focus on prayer for our church, I was thinking about where we are in the United States of America as we're considering a change of leadership and what is that going to mean to Bible-believing Christians, those who hold to Judeo-Christian ethic, what is it going to mean to us? Is there going to be an increase in persecution? I don't know. I'm not here to scare you. I'm here to give you comfort from God's word. But it's interesting that here, Paul, in a time when it was clearly an anti-God, anti-Christ context, calls for the prayer of all the rulers. Pray that Nero would be saved. Nero, I mean, the, the guy that is blaming me for the fire, I didn't, I didn't do. The guy that's killed my brother or my sister, yeah, pray for that person. I think that reflects back to the words of Jesus Christ on what to do with our enemies. So we understand the timing. We understand who he's writing it to. And, and you might want to ask the question, what's he saying? Well, if you scan your eyes down chapter 1, what you'll see is he's talking to the church in Ephesus because Timothy is the pastor. And something about Timothy to consider, he is confronted with all sorts of false teachers and false teaching. So in in chapter 1, we note in verses 3 through 7, they're given to endless genealogies. So they would talk about the line of where someone came from, and they would focus in on this is what makes them important. And if it's endless, that means it's pointless. Genealogies have value. I've demonstrated that in the sermon series, but not endless genealogies. And then there's a misuse of the law in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1. Paul says, be careful, they're not using the law the right way. The law is for unbelievers, not for believers. He was warning them against legalism. And then the misunderstanding of the gospel. In verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1, Paul says, I know very much that I am a sinner and I need the Savior. And he's so good and kind to bring the gospel to me so that I could respond to the good news. Make sure you preach and teach the the gospel in the right way. And then he uh, goes on to talk about, you're going to have to discipline a couple leaders. And that must have been the hardest thing, I think, for him, as he's understanding these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. That's the very last verse in chapter 1. So this is Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, Make sure you're, you're teaching the right things, not the wrong things about the law, about the gospel, and there will be those that disagree with you. You have to stand up to them and say, get out of here. You don't belong here. To make matters even more difficult, if you just look over at chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we see that Timothy is considered youthful. So he's young as a new pastor in Ephesus, and he's also considered young in the context of the 
the, the congregation. Command, it says in, in chapter 4, verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, if we look at this from a very specific context, I've heard this verse used for youth groups. So teens, don't let anyone despise your youth. And, and that's a true, pithy statement. Actually, the, uh, Timothy was probably between the ages of 36 and 40. That's good news, right, for those of us in that age range. Uh, though I'm not, no longer, I'm 46. But it, I used to be youthful, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's hopeful. But Timothy was new at this and here, Paul is saying, you got to do this, man. This is really important. And this is going back to follow the instructions. I, I think it's interesting in the way Paul talks about your growth and my growth in Christ. He always starts with put off, and he goes on to put on. So put off is chapter one. Put off endless genealogies. Put off the wrong use of the law. Put off a misunderstanding of the gospel. Put off those that are confronting you with heresy. And then he gets into the good news. Now I want to talk to you about what to put on. So let's jump in there and let's consider the priority of prayer. So verses 1 through 7, we've read together already in our scripture reading, but will you note with me the number of times you see the word all mentioned? You'll see it six times in these seven verses. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in all or every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires some people, no, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for some. No, he gave his life a ransom for, what does it say? All, A-L-L, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this is, this, this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, which is an interesting thing. Paul, why did you have to add that? Because I, I'm not lying to you, okay? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But he was so much confronted with people doubting him that he was telling Timothy, listen, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. There's something about the all that is supposed to help us understand the connection to the gospel going out to all nations, not just the Jewish nation, but to the Gentile nation as well. And so we have this connection here. I hope it's helpful to you as you consider the text that we're going to look at. Let's start out with just this order, first of all. This is the priority of prayer. Pray on purpose, first of all. This is like, I just got done telling you what to put off. Now, let's get going. First things first. You'd think that maybe he would say, make sure you preach with enthusiasm and zeal. Because if you don't preach that way, people won't come. Even on the day after Christmas, that weekend. You know, I know of some churches that decided to cancel their services today because it is traditionally the lowest attended service in the year. And then they said, and COVID. And I, I don't know what to say about that, other than I'm so glad that you're here. But you know, if you came here just because you're going to hear preaching, that's not what Paul said would be the reason why you should come and what we should first focus in on. Oh, I know what it is. First of all, have a great coffee bar. 
with all sorts of different flavors and make sure it's hot and it is really creatively done. And you have, first of all, make sure you have a great welcome team. Make sure you have a great usher crew. Make sure the chairs are padded and not just hard plastic. Make sure you're meeting in an auditorium, not a gym. No, none of this. He says, first of all, with priority, we quote from a guy named uh, D.A. Carson. He says, the word relates not to the primacy of time, but the primacy of importance. He was saying, this is the most important thing. This is the most important thing. Warren Wiersbe said this, first of all, indicates that prayer is most important in the public worship of the church. It's sad to see how prayer has lost importance in many churches. If I announce a banquet, a pastor says, people will come out of the woodwork to attend. But if I announce a prayer meeting, I'm lucky if the ushers show up. Not only have the special meetings for prayer lost stature in most churches, but even prayer in the public services is greatly minimized. Many pastors spend more time in announcements than they do in prayer. End of quote. So you see that we are making efforts to go with prayer of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That doesn't make us any better than any other church. We're just giving effort towards it. And it's because of spending some time in the Nine Marks series on prayer where an author has encouraged us as pastors and deacons to think about how we're praying and how much we're praying as a church. So here's a punchline. In 2021, I'm calling you to join us in our efforts towards corporate prayer. And one of the additional items that you're going to see is that we are actually returning to our equip service next week. So January 3rd will be our return to normal function of service. So 9.30, like you are here today, until about 11 o'clock, 10.50, is our worship service. Then we'll have a break for fellowship. And then the children, some, the, the kids from third grade to fifth grade have had nothing since March. So they'll get to have something finally. I'm glad for them. And we will have our time of equip, which normally it means the career group meets during that time, the youth group meets during that time, and we have an auditorium class that meets here. And during that time, once a month, we are going to use that time to pray. We'll pray in groups. We'll pray just together as a, a corporate body. But we have much to pray and ask God for. And I want to continue to remind you of praying and asking God to just bless us with the sale of Seedley Lane property in 2021. I want, to, I want you to grow tired of hearing me say that. Because we're to ask, seek, knock. Just continue to knock on that, on that door. Lord, could you please do this? Lord, would you please do this? And I want to ask you over and over again to pray that God would bless our efforts that start in the middle of January to reach the Heritage Trace Apartments. We have a whole initiative that has been in the works for the last, the, the last couple months in the fall to reach this apartment complex in gospel clubs that we're going to do on Saturdays. And we're hopefully going to transition that into bringing some on Sunday as well. But we're going to start with reaching the lost on uh, a a time that would make sense for them. And I have mentioned before the number of times that I've driven by here or come by here during the day around 3 o'clock, and I see two buses of kids getting off from the schools around here. So let's pray for God to provide us the sale of that property. Let's pray for souls to come to Christ and for families and connections being made. I'm sure that it could lead to English as a second language classes. There's so many things. It's, it's a, a whole um, fishing hole right over here that I want to encourage you to pray for. But Paul says pray. First of all, 
Now, um, if I haven't worn you out yet with just this first emphasis on the purpose, listen to this quote by Carson. In brief, public praying is a pedagogical or a teaching opportunity. It provides the one who is praying with an opportunity to instruct or encourage or edify all who hear the prayer. Now, this happened already in each of the prayers today. So in adoration, when Pastor Mike caused us to think about adoring God for the great things that he's done, when he prayed in thank God, did you, did, were you, did you catch yourself saying, yeah, that's right, there's an AV team and there's an usher crew and, and there's people caring for us in the nursery. And man, I, he's praying, he's thanking God for me. That's awesome. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm getting instructed and so are you. And then when Zach prayed a prayer of confession and he prayed and asked God specifically to humble our hearts. I thought of the, the passage of scripture I read this morning um, where Rehoboam took over the throne after Solomon's reign was done and he, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord for a period of time until he was established, it says in First Chronicles, and then he went his own way. And then Shishak came and got an assembly of armies, Shishak from Egypt, got some Ethiopians to come in and they were gonna crush Jerusalem and then Rehoboam and the men humbled themselves. And God turned and said, oh, you're humble? I'm listening. And he preserved Jerusalem. So it's important for us to humble ourselves and to admit that we don't come perfect to this church, right? We come broken. We come in need of the gospel. And to thank God for what he has done and, and what he will continue to do. So there's a teaching opportunity. In, in liturgical churches, going back to Carson's quote, many of the prayers are well-crafted, but to some ears, they lack spontaneity. In non-liturgical churches, many of the prayers are so predictable that they're scarcely any more spontaneous than written prayers. And most of them are not neatly or as well-crafted. The answer to both situations is to provide more prayers that are carefully and freshly prepared. That does not mean writing them out verbatim, though it can be a good thing to do. At the least, it means thinking through in advance in some detail just where the prayer is going, preparing perhaps some notes and memorizing them, end of quote. I think we're all going to be edified if we actually take this pray on purpose. First of all, let's give some thought to what we're doing. I want to encourage you to pray together as you interact with one another uh, following the service or before the service and a need is presented. My dad is really good at this where I'll talk to him about a bird and he'll say, well, let's pray about it. I was, okay, that's a good idea. As we begin gathering together, you may want to come and sit down on your, in your chair and prepare your own heart for worship. Just sit quietly and pray and call out to God. Prayer must be something that is a priority in our lives. But pray with passion. Then he says, I urge. This word urge is to call to one side, to exhort. It's an effort to fight against false teaching. I urge you. Salvation is connected with you're uh, connected to your ethnicity in the sense that you urge the understanding that who you are is based on God's love for you and his connection to you and that he provided you as a light to the Gentiles. That there's a reason why you're here. You're here on mission in an effort to align the church to please God. He's urging, pray with passion, so engage in this and just don't go, just kind of like, oh, whatever, I'm just, you know, dear God, thank you for this day, bless this food, oh, wait a second, I'm not eating anything. You know, you, there are certain prayers that we pray all the time, we don't even think about what we're saying, so I'm asking you 
to think about it. Let's make it a priority. Let's do it with passion and zeal. But then notice the specific words that he uses. He uses a collection. And if we read it quickly, we might get a little bit like it's all the same thing. That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made. Now, when, I, when I've read this, different commentaries have different thoughts on this. Some commentaries say, oh, don't make too much of the different words. They're all kind of saying the same thing. Cry out to God. He'll hear you and he'll respond to you. It's actually, if anything, a buildup from supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving. But I am one that thinks that perhaps every word, not perhaps, I believe this wholeheartedly, every word is inspired by God and has meaning, and so there may be something more to it. So I'll give it to you in this simple outline with a little bit of explanation. This first one, supplication, means plead with God. So when we pray, we need to have this urgency about our prayer. It has the, it's the root meaning of being one who lacks something or deprived of something, to be without something. So we're pleading with God because we feel like we, if we don't cry out to him, if he doesn't answer, things won't change. This kind of prayer arises from the sense of need. Knowing what is lacking, we plead to God with a supply. As we look out at the masses of lost humanity and the enormity of the need, it should drive us to our knees in evangelistic prayer. And this is really what comes out of it. Pray for kings and for all in high positions of authority. This is what Puritan Richard Baxter said about this type of evangelistic prayer. Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or of men in you, let them yearn towards your ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundreds, many hundred diseases are waiting ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they are lost forever. Have, your hearts of, have you hearts of rock that you cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the word of God and the danger of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not bestir yourselves to the helping of others? Do you not care who is damned so you be saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Dost thou live closely by them, or meet them in the streets, or labor with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their souls or of the life to come? If their houses were on fire, thou wouldst run and help them, and wilt thou not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? End of quote. Paul's kind of intense. Now, Richard Baxter is equally intense. And he's saying, do we really believe what we say we believe and care about people around us? And if we do, are we praying for them? That's just a simple way to awaken our eyes and and our hearts. Now, notice the next word, surrender to God, prayers. The word for prayer here, it's the general word. It's the word we see most frequently throughout the New Testament. It's um, unlike entreaties. In Scripture, it is only used in reference to God. It thus carries with it a unique element of worship and reverence. So we're crying out to God. So we're saying, without you, I can do nothing, and I am calling out to you because I surrender to you. I surrender all. I need your help. And this is an attitude of prayer. 2 Corinthians 4.15, uh, 4, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. I'm pleading with God. I'm surrendered to God. I struggle with God. Intercession. 
The intercession here has the idea of putting yourself in the shoes of the one you're praying for. So God, I I need you. I'm crying out to you. I'm pleading with you because without you, we lack everything. I'm calling out to you. I surrender to you because you are all powerful. Lord, what's it like to be, and then fill in the name. As they struggle through financial difficulties or as they work through health issues, you actually are thinking deeply about the person you're praying for. You're caring for them. Not just who are the names of our rulers and leaders, and let's just pray for them by name, but actually putting yourselves in their shoes and caring for them, interceding for them. This is a great word because it is the same thing Jesus Christ does for us every time we pray. He intercedes for us. He is our mediator, we're going to find out here in this text of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 25 and 26, who helps us when we can't bring up prayers before God. We need to have that kind of passionate appeal on behalf of other people. So, pretty intense, right? Well, we're not done yet, because we end with this idea of thanking God. I think that's so appropriate, because when we thank God, we are stepping back and saying, it's not all in our hands, it's in your mighty hands. I praise you because you have a plan, and I just want to be a part of that plan. I just want you to use me. So I don't grow anxious as if if people don't respond to this good news, what am I going to do? No, I pray and ask God to change hearts, but in the end, I trust God to be the one who does the changing. It's the great privilege that we have to pray for one another. This is supposed to have priority in our time of worship. We pray with precision. These four nuances enrich our prayers as we pray specifically for the lost. If they're missing, we need to examine our hearts. Do we really fully realize the desperate condition the lost are in? Do we really want to see God glorified through the salvation of those around us? Do we sympathize with the compelling reality of their lostness, both for time and for eternity? Do we, frankly, really even care? I think too many times we come to church just because it's something that we do. Let's stop that. Let's come because we have to, because we just want to worship together, and because together there is power in our corporate prayer. God changes things through prayer. That's his means to change things. Now you might be right now struggling with this fact, yeah, I know God changes things, but are you trying to mean, say to me that you know, certain things that I do will impact God? I thought God is sovereign, he's over all, and he's just going to bring about his decree according to his will. And let me introduce you to the tension. What we see in our text here is it's a call for us to understand, in verse 4, his desire, he desires that all people would be saved. So his desire is there, that's more of the, the way we relate with him. He cares for us on a personal level, but then the gospel came, the testimony in verse 6 that came at a proper time, which means he's sovereign over all of this. So his desire is there, but his sovereignty is strong. So I'm not asking you to embrace one or the other, is what I'm trying to bring up to you. I'm saying to you, pray as if it all depended upon you, but remember that it all depends on God. So cry out to him, ask, seek, knock, but realize that nothing happens apart from what God wills to happen. So we should pray according to his will. There's a tension that's supposed to be there, and if I've resolved it for you, I haven't done my job. I want you to continue to say, okay, I think I get this. God's up here, we're down here. He's asking me to cry out for the lost, and if I cry out enough, then he might save them. 
But what if I don't cry out to them? Will he still save them? In his divine sovereign will, he's going to draw people to salvation. He will do that whether or not you pray for them. You're like, well, then why am I praying for him? Because it, well, we're going to see. Because it brings pleasure to him. And because it's a good thing to do. And that's why we should pray. Not because if I do this, then this will happen. It's because if I do this, God is pleased. And that's ultimately what it's all about anyway. How about the purpose of prayer? Well, as we see, we break this down that this should be made for all people. And I want to emphasize the purpose of prayer in this text right here corporately is to participate in the salvation of the lost. And this is interesting, I think, on, on many fronts, primarily because we're talking about the fact that when we gather for worship, it's about believers coming together to worship God. It's not about bringing unbelievers here and making the church more appealing in our worship service to unbelievers so that they come here and hear the gospel and get saved. Actually, God's plan is for us to go out and reach them and then come here and worship him. You you see the, the pattern? So while we're here as believers, we're crying out that God would save them, that he would use us to be a part of it. And it's an interesting thing when he says all people, remember the context of what I said to you about what happens in AD 64 with the fire. We're supposed to pray for kings, those in Ephesus, and all who are in high positions. This is all-inclusive type of thing. And this is an amazing statement being made here. Pray that all of them would come to Christ. This is a, a responsibility that we have. I know that you have an opinion about what you either are happy about took place over the election period or wish would have taken place. But time to move on, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to get back to what really matters, and what really matters is prayer for the salvation of the lost, particularly for those who are influencing things all around us. So why would you disconnect now? Because you didn't get your way? That sounds like a spoiled toddler. I didn't get what I wanted. Nah, Get over it. Start praying for them. And by the way, I've never heard or read anywhere in scriptures where it talks about a politician being our savior. There is a savior. His name is Jesus. So this is an important call for us to, let's get our heads out of the sand, let's look out around us, and let's start praying for God to do what only he can do. And as we're doing it, we're pleading with him We're completely surrendered to him. We're stepping in the shoes of the very person that maybe we don't like, and we're thanking God for his will in all of this. It leads to some amazing things, but I want to give you a practical suggestion I brought up before that I found to be very, very helpful. It's called the person of peace theology. I brought this up to you before, but I'm highlighting it again because this is very strategic in our evangelism. This really comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 6, which is Jesus' instruction to the disciples when they go out into a city, find a person of peace, a son of peace. If we can find that one person who is influential in that community, that one will be used of God to reach the masses. A lot of times we hear of evangelism as being passing out as many gospel tracts as possible, that those are pamphlets, with the gospel on it, if you don't know what I'm talking about. They're they're still good to have on you. They're still good to pass on to others. But I have found that the scripture actually works, and and in its working, if you can build a redemptive relationship with someone who's influential in your slice of the world, that God will use that to influence many, many others. 
So I ask you to join me in praying for God to help us see the person of peace in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, around the Powdersville area, and watch that happen. So they get saved, and then they reach out to other people. The woman at the well is a great example of a person of peace. She came to know Jesus, and what did she immediately do? She went in and got a bunch of people and brought them to Jesus. And Jesus says, look, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. Can't you see their white turbans bobbing up and down as they're walking, looking like a bunch of wheat coming up to the well, and Jesus was sharing the gospel with them? Person of peace is a great thing to do. It leads us to what we should do when we are confronted with things that we don't like. Here, as we're praying this way and we're seeking solution in a way that is biblically oriented, it leads us to this next phrase, that we, which is a result. Okay, so I don't want you to miss this, just in grammatically. We're supposed to pray for kings and all who are in high authorities, and what's that going to do? It's going to produce this result, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for rioting, does it? No, we need to be different. We need to shine as lights. And we need to be ones that are willing to demonstrate a quiet and godly life. And I I think it's interesting, as you consider how it's rolled out for us, we have an internal peace that happens, quiet and godly, which produces externally the look of peaceful and dignified. You follow those words, It's something that happens in our souls and manifests through the way we react and respond to those around us. So I want to encourage you to think about how you're responding to difficulty around you. There is hope. We are connected to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to encourage you. I have a little excerpt in there about how to relate to politics and the Christian. I'm not going to take time to break that down right now in the service. I've said enough that was politically oriented that's connected to this text of scripture. But I want to encourage you to take a look at that at some time. But ultimately, why do we pray? To bring pleasure to God. I love how Paul says this. He could have just ended with the period, this is good. Why do we pray? Because it's good. The word here is kalos, which means beautiful. Beautiful to whom? It's beautiful to God. It's intrinsically good that we would spend time praying as a church. So do you want any other motivation? We don't pray because if I don't pray, that person might go to hell. You pray because it's a good thing to do. Understand that? After a result, a lot of people may come to Christ. But that's not the goal. The goal is glorifying God. That's the goal. That is our focus. It's a difference in our approach to ministry whether it's doxological or soteriological. God gets the glory or it's all about man and what they need. God receiving glory has to motivate us. It's a good thing. God delights in bringing pleasure to himself. This is an act of selfishness. This is, excuse me, not an act of selfishness for God, though it seems like it. If I say do it because it's good to me, that's selfish in my mind. Because he is the ultimate object of worship. It's not what did you get out of the service today, but what did God get out of the service today? Let me say that again. When we come to church, it's not what did you get out of it, it's what did God get out of your worship of him. Instead of how was your day, 
pastor should remind us to ask, how was God seen through you today? What a radical way of thinking. Pray because it's good, and pray because it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. It's often said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done in earth. God's pleasure is maximized by the increase of people to a saving knowledge of the truth. Add more worshipers to the majestic choir. It's pleasing in the sight of God the the Father. And he makes the statement, who desires? This desire here is not a decree, but a desire of affection. His will His will of desire, his desire is that people, all people, would be saved. This is an interesting text as it relates to this idea of limited atonement or unlimited atonement. Those of you that don't like limited atonement, I want you to know that this is a great proof text for unlimited atonement. Those of you that like limited atonement or or unlimited atonement, you're like, yeah, let's get them. There are a lot of other passages that talk about how there are the gospel is preached and all those ordained to eternal life believed, Acts 13, 48, if you want to look at that. And there we're introduced to that tension again. And what I want you to understand, that we're to pray as if, as we pray, people will get saved. Because God desires that all people would come to the knowledge of the truth. And you should preach and teach and encourage and draw people as much as possible to the beauty of the gospel and believe that they can, everyone can turn back to Jesus until the point they die. I think that's just the bottom line. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This does not mean all people without exception, for certainly the whole world is not going to be saved. So it's not universalism here. It means all people without distinction. He desires Jews and Gentiles Rich and poor, religious and pagan, come to the knowledge of the faith. So we need to be a people who goes after all peoples and not just focus in on those that are like us. And let's talk about how it all comes together as we consider this idea of the power of prayer. So we've looked at the priority, and I spend a lot of time just saying this has got to have importance at Palmetto Baptist Church, and we're working towards that end, and we can continue to grow towards that end. The purpose of prayer really is to please God. It's a good thing, and it pleases him. That's the purpose of it. And as a side effect, many people come to know him and join the choir of worshipers. And let's look now at the power of prayer, and this is in verses 5 through 7. This is where the power comes from. Jesus makes communication with God possible. I want you to get this. For there is one God, this is monotheism being taught, very important. This is what distinguishes Christianity from many, many other religions. Monotheism. Now, you still have Islam and you have Judaism that holds to monotheism. So there's one other aspect that makes us different from the rest. But he starts out with, there is one God. We must worship one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. We need a go-between, someone who will speak on our behalf, the man Christ Jesus. This is very important because he is the one who is the one who can come before God and say, I speak on behalf of that church as they are crying out to you in prayer, and that individual as he's crying out to you in prayer, because he is, number one, God, and number two, he is one as God who never sinned while he was a man. 
He's never sinned, period. He is sinless, and he is on the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And so you said, but I thought you just said monotheism. Now you're talking about God and Jesus. Yes, I'm introducing you to the fact of the Trinity. And that is mind-blowing stuff, but yet it is what the Scripture teaches. One God and three distinct persons. And here we're learning about that one God, the Father of us all, who gives us the rights to come to him because of Jesus Christ, and then empowers and fills us through the Spirit of God. This Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. That word ransom is the idea of purchasing rights of a slave. Someone who's been enslaved, who gets set free. Jesus is the one who purchased that right. And he is one who gave himself a ransom for all, again. Which is the testimony given at a proper time. So, Jesus makes communication with God possible because prayer is in line with his way of salvation. One God, one mediator, advocate, defense attorney, the man, Christ Jesus, 100% man, and therefore able to relate with us on all accounts, as it says in the book of Hebrews. He's given for all, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. All of this speaks of great glory that anyone in here, anyone watching online, can be saved today. All you must do is repent of your sin and turn to him. Receive that gift of salvation, greatest gift you're ever going to get. In this this statement that I I alluded to in the first part, I want to just slow down on this last phrase, which is the testimony given at a proper time. I want you to understand his desire is that everyone would be saved, but he is sovereign in this entire process. And note this connection. This word for testimony given at a proper time, I found it in four distinct areas that I just wanted to show to you. He was sovereign. God is sovereign in the birth of Jesus Christ. And we see this in Galatians 4.4. And I want to encourage you to turn to these passages. We're we're going to turn to Galatians 4.4. And 1 Timothy 2.6 is in front of us. We're just going to look at the top one, okay? So turn over to Galatians 4.4. Click or turn over there. Again, the verse here in 1 Timothy 2.6 says, it's the testimony given at the proper time, Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. It goes on to say to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When time was pregnant and ready to give birth, God sent forth his son. And that fits into everything that was going on in history. That's why I have referenced Luke chapter 2 where you see Quirinius was governor of Syria and we have Herod involved in this whole process in in Matthew 1 and 2, and you see the connection to God at the right time when all of Israel thought Rome was going to rule and continue to subject them, he brings in Jesus right at the perfect time. And it's usually when people start to lose hope that he intervenes, and he did that in the coming of Jesus. We also see that at the death of Christ, and that's in our text that we're looking at. He is the ransom, it says, for all, who gave himself a ransom for all at the proper time. So right at the the perfect time, and, and I don't have time to break down to you, but I encourage you at some point to consider 
the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Connect it to Nehemiah chapter 2 when Artaxerxes makes the decree to Nehemiah, go back and rebuild Jerusalem to the very day when Jesus comes in his triumphal entry. It's to the day exactly matching Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. That gives me hope because not only is the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, his, his crucifixion, his triumphal entry, but the return of Christ is equally according to his proper time. Look at chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verses 14 through 15. And all I'm trying to emphasize is the sovereignty of God in this whole process of us praying and God doing what he wants to do. 1 Timothy six fourteen through 15. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, with whom no, has, no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And I want to encourage you that God is in control of all of this. Think about the people, recipients of this letter, they're thinking about Nero, and you're calling me to pray for Nero? Who's killing all these people? You're calling me to pray for that unbeliever, all people, but they're so wicked and pagan. And he says, all people, at all times, in all occasions, without exception, yes, pray for them, because God is in charge, and he has a plan for their salvation. And, and I want you to see, finally, in Titus 1, 1 through 4, which is in part of these pastoral epistles, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time, there's our word, manifest in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is saying, hey Titus, don't forget as I write this letter to you, you came to me, uh, you came to know Jesus and, and I'm your, the, your father in the faith, as it were, your disciple-making man, but it was at the proper time that that happened. And this is exactly what will happen in the lives of everyone that we interact with. So don't lose heart, don't lose hope, keep praying for them, keep seeking for opportunities in a very winsome way, to talk about the gospel and the goodness of God. Faith flags, faith stories. Notice back at our passage in 1 Timothy 2, the very last verse. I wanted you to see that the power of prayer, Jesus makes communication with God possible, but he also makes communication with God purposeful. Notice this last phrase. For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And the only thing I I want you to get out of this one is Paul really felt this deeply. He understood it. He's like, this is what I'm called to do. And and until you get to that point where where you're like, I'm going to participate in worshiping my great God and praying for the lost, and that's my role in this whole thing, until you really own that, it just becomes another thing that we do in a service. But if you join Paul in saying, this is what I've been appointed to do, Paul had a special commission, no doubt. But I'm encouraging you that we're all called to care at the level in which he cares. So here's my application for you today. 
I want to encourage you to make prayer a priority in your personal walk in 2021. I agree. If you followed, I said this passage is primarily for corporate church, right? It's for PBC church and how we pray corporately together. But it does, it's got to start at home, right? It's got to start in our own heart. So I want to encourage you with, with some simple suggestions. Develop a prayer journal where you're keeping track of people you're praying for and answers to prayer, requests you're making and answers to that prayer. Develop a prayer calendar. This is a simple step that I have mentioned to you before, but I want to encourage you to consider writing down 30 people that you know need prayer. 30 people that you know need prayer. And then pick a day of each month and pray for them. And even go a step further and call them or text them and say, I'm praying for you today. Is there anything I can pray specifically for you on your behalf? What power there is in receiving phone calls like that? I mean, it might be middle of the, the month, like the 15th, and all of a sudden I get a text, and hey, Pastor Jason, you're on my list. Really? Awesome. Yeah, what can I pray for you about? And I shoot back a text. We should at least be doing that in this church with one another, right? And I've, I've seen other approaches where you could get a bookmark and you could write down five or six unbelievers that you know that need Christ and you write down their names and you're praying for them. And I'm just telling you that if we make this a regular pattern that we're praying for the lost, it will cause us to see when the door is wide open. I'm convinced that the door is really wide open a lot more than we see. We're just not seeing it because we're so focused in on getting from A to B, point A to point B, or our own problems. We all have them. But God bears all of them. He takes on, he says, take my yoke upon me, learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest, rest for your souls. So we need to be people that live above all the pressures of this world and we're focusing on, man, why, why am I here? I'm here to please God, glorify him and to share the gospel. So you gotta take deliberate efforts in this. As it comes to prayer in your community, I wanna encourage you to live peacefully among all men. Let us be known as church members, as the ones that are first to, as we go to the grocery store and two of you are going for the same item on the shelf and you see someone really wants that item, go ahead, you can have that item. Let's put our carts away. You know, coming from Walmart and just don't just get to your car and leave your cart. Go find the cart corral place and put it there. If someone is saying something that's just mean-spirited, and everyone else is ignoring what's going on, let's be that person of peace. Be careful, but be that person of peace that says, hey, is everything okay? If someone is crying in a coffee shop, don't just ignore it. Don't just say something to the person you're with. Approach that person. Consider, hey, are you all right? Why? If someone's stranded on the side of the road, what do you do with that? Well, you have to be careful. Again, all of this. It's gonna be 2021. I get that. Don't tell me. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. I'm asking you, to have our church members be known in this community as people of peace. And you can make your own applications to a bunch of these, but pray for God to reveal to you a person of peace in your network, in your community. That's it. That's a really great one. And I'm telling you, it works because it's biblical. And I just don't think enough of us are practicing this. I want to see from you Not just you wait around to see what happens at Heritage Trace, but you make it your goal to reach someone for Jesus and see them come to Christ and introduce them to this church. Let's not wait around for someone else to do this. And then make a priority, prayer a priority in our body life. 
participate in, in, in the ACTS efforts, acts, okay? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. When we're doing this, I'm asking you to join us in it. Adore God with us. As confession of sin is being made, say, yeah, that is absolutely right. That's me. I'm a mess. Lord, help me. And you get the point. We're joining in this. Uh, stay for the monthly equip sessions. And, and I'm just going to hone in on this one just for a second. We have now, out of necessity, developed a habit. And that habit is one service and we're gone. We're done. And for a lot of reasons, it's been kind of nice. Right? You can get to that restaurant early. You don't have to worry about, am I teaching here or not teaching there? But I want to remind you of something. One day a week, we gather together as God's people to hear from God, to worship God, to bring him pleasure, to pray to God. Could you please prayerfully consider sticking around for our equip service and joining in the training that goes on, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, praying to God together with fellow brothers and sisters um, this is really an important thing, and, and we get into the habit, and we're, I'm trying to kick us back into, as, as pastors, we're saying, now it's time. We're going back to full services, and I get it. It's kind of an odd time if you watch you know, NBC Nightly News. This is not the time to go back to normal. This is the time to keep hunkering down, and, and I think it's a time for us to continue to exercise discernment and caution when it comes to our own hygiene and caution, all of that, but we should have been doing that anyway. But if we don't return back to what God's called us to do as a church, to gather and pray and to worship, it is very, I think, it's, it's a very desperate situation we're going to find our country in. It's already starting to happen. And we need to be a lighthouse in this community. And pray together in your community groups. I, I hope you're doing that. I'm assuming you're doing that, but make that a priority. And I, and I could go on and on, but... I hope you're left with this thought that I'm, I'm going to bring pleasure to God and I'm going to pray. I'm going to do that deliberately for his glory because it pleases him. Why don't you join me in a time of crying out to God. I've given you a lot of suggestions. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then I'm going to let you give to God what he's called from you.